This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Joe Hardy. And by me, Rolf Nelson. Welcome to the show. Today, we are going to discuss a paper by Dan Wagner. It's called The Illusion of Conscious Will. So this is, I think, an important it's an important paper in psychology, and it's relevant to philosophy, too. The article that we're discussing today was an article that was in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. I think we've mentioned before that's a good source for a discussion of important topics because it includes rebuttals from a number of other important scientists and other people, and then the author gets a chance to uh, explain themselves afterwards. So it's a kind of a discussion forum. Yeah, and it's uh, a, an interesting topic to discuss and something that uh, ties into a lot of the different pieces that we've talked about on other episodes. And uh, so I think it's uh, something that is worth uh, spending some time on. We can dive right into it. All right, let's dive into it. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Wagner's point, I, his main point is that conscious will is an illusion. That's That's the big point. And... That's something that people have been debating forever. I don't think we're going to solve the debate, but it's uh, it's worth understanding the arguments and weighing in on what we think uh, is is reasonable here as well. So yeah, yeah, wanna... and I think the starting point that he uses is one that psychology uses quite a bit, which is what needs to be explained is not necessarily the metaphysics or the physics of the situation but the psychological aspects of it. So in the same way as there are psychologists of religions suggesting that the thing to be explained is not necessarily whether or not God exists, but why we believe in a God and maybe taking an evolutionary look at things, why is it useful for us to believe in a God? This is the the general approach that Wagner takes. He's not necessarily weighing in on does true free will exist? Although, you know, that's a point of discussion. He says he's not weighing in on that. I think he actually is. What he's, But what he says he's weighing in on is why do we have this feeling of having um, free will or having a conscious will or, or feeling that our thoughts produce an action in the world? Yes, and it might make sense to say a bit about what he means by conscious will and how he's defining it. So right off the, the bat, at the beginning of the paper, he says, the experience of conscious will is the feeling that we are doing things. So I think that's that's the key point. It's the, the feeling that we are doing things. Yeah, and he brings this throughout the, the book and, and in this paper too. He, he talks about free will as or, or will, conscious will, I guess. He doesn't, you, he doesn't really use the word or the term free will as much as he uses conscious will. Talks about conscious will as really an, a kind of an emotion or a feeling that we may attach to a particular action rather than a, a, a thing that we either have or don't have. Right. And this idea that will is a feeling is uh, an idea that's been around since at least Hume. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and he, he wrote about this concept 
Yeah, there was a nifty quote that he had from from David Hume in here. Yeah, nothing but the internal impression we feel and are conscious of when we knowingly give rise to any new motion of our body or new perception of our mind. Right. So that's, so that's what the will is in this way. It's it's just the impression that we feel that we are doing something or that we have some uh, some perception. One of the things that I think is important in the way that this is discussed is it doesn't deny that we're conscious or, or that we're aware of these feelings. It's just a misattribution of these feelings. Um, that, so we're, we're certainly conscious of motivations. We're conscious of what we want. We're conscious of actions that we make. But really what um, Wagner is suggesting here is that we just don't understand, our, understand ourselves well enough to be, <laughs> essentially, I guess, to be aware that what we're thinking isn't what causes something to happen in the world. Right. Exactly. And he, you know, he brings up a, a lot of different examples of how your feeling of causing some action is at odds with the actual facts of the matter. Mm -hmm. And he uses that in a sense as evidence to suggest that conscious will is an illusion. Yeah. And an illusion in the, in the sense that we're we're just misperceiving the the correct causes of actions that we that these things are happening, but we're misrepresenting the cause as coming from ourselves, or we're not really understanding things in the same way that a visual illusion is um, just a misapprehension of what actually exists or what the actual nature of the world is. We're misperceiving size or or misperceiving motion or something like that. We're not experiencing the true nature of it. When he says that conscious will is the feeling that we are doing things, that our intention is the cause of the action. That, I, think I think that's the key right there. Right. And some, so in some sense, the idea that both of these pieces need to be examined, right? One is the feeling that you are, in fact, doing something or something is happening that you are involved in, engaged with, and that your intention is somehow the, the cause of the action. And they, they break apart in different ways. I, and, you know, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about the first part. Sometimes in dreams, for example, you will feel that you are doing something. Mm -hmm. And you will experience that you are doing something or something is happening to you or you're involved in some activity. And it, it, you're not. It's a dream. So you're, you're moving around the world. You're, you're... It's an illusion, as he's talking about. Right. As, about it. Exactly. So in, in that sense, you know, just merely, and I don't think anyone would, would say that the fact of dreams negates the reality of will. So in other words, it's, it can't be the case that there has to be a one-to-one -one relationship between the experience of doing something and it actually happening in order for us to believe in conscious will. Yeah, so in that sense, he's. I think he's absolutely right. So there are plenty of examples of times where there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between our intention and the cause of an uh, of a thing. You know, you may think that you're controlling something, but you're actually not. So he talks about two ways to disentangle intentions from causation. 
Uh, one of these is when you intend to do something, but you're not actually the controller of it. And you can, in other words, you can be fooled into thinking you're in control of something. Imagine uh, gambling, for example. So you're on a run in gambling. You think it's all good luck. It's You think it's all due to you. There's something great going on. All of a sudden, something bad happens and you realize, oh, I guess I wasn't in control of that. It wasn't, you know, my conscious in, intent, all of my little good luck stuff didn't have anything to do with what was happening to me. That was all just completely random. And the other, the other side of this is when we have actions that don't seem to be caused by any sort of conscious will. So when we, when we, in everyday life, we're constantly doing all kinds of automatic actions that aren't necessarily something that we'd consider consciously willed. Um, you know, we're doing all kinds of, uh, you know, you move your hand around when you talk, as I'm doing right now. I'm moving my hands around and talking, didn't even realize it. Um, you make little little motions that you don't think of. When you type on a keyboard, it's mostly automatic um, action that's happening. Uh, an example that he uses is hypnosis. So people may act without um, considering it something that they're consciously willing. They may just go through the motions and follow the suggestions of another person. Uh, alien hand syndrome is this interesting neurological condition. And this may be something that listeners are familiar with, alien hand syndrome, when your hand doesn't feel like it's a part of your body and it seems to act on its own accord. This would be an instance where you don't have that sense that there's free will or there's a conscious will in control of your hand it acts entirely differently. In in all of those cases, there's not a one-to-one a -one mapping of a conscious intent and that thing actually occurring. Um, right, and the you know for the arguments of Wegner, it's probably worth diving into a couple of the examples that he uses because I think that's a lot of what he's trying to accomplish here um, with his with his paper and with his book is to explore some of the situations where it is quite clear that there is a distinction between you know, your perception of your intention to do something and then what you in fact do and the, you know that uh, disconnection or that lack of pure continuity is one of the areas that he most emphasizes in trying to suggest that the conscious will is, is an illusion so if you think about the alien hand syndrome uh, which is a neurological disorder, and, and it's caused by brain injury. So there is some sort of disconnection between the different hemispheres of the brain, the left and the right hemisphere. As some of you may, may be aware, that when you move your right arm or your right hand, this is being controlled by the left side of the brain and vice versa. When you move your left hand, that's being controlled by the right side of your brain. When a person has an injury to a part of the brain that is in charge of connecting the two hemispheres. So, for example, the corpus callosum. Then you might have a disconnection between your perception or your ability to articulate your perception uh, of your intention and then what is, in fact, happening. So, It almost seems as though it's like there's two separate people in there, um, sometimes with conflicting... Uh, intentions are conflicting actions. 
Yes, exactly. I guess in this case, he's actually talking mostly about damage to the middle of the frontal lobe on the side of the brain opposite the affected hand. In, in this specific case, for this one patient, the left hand would tenaciously grope for and grasp any nearby object, pick and pull at her clothes, and even grasp her throat during sleep. She slept with the arm tied to prevent nocturnal misbehavior. She never denied that her left arm and hand belonged to her, although she did refer to her limb as though it were an autonomous entity. Yeah, what a weird sensation that must be. So the idea there is that this your own body is acting in ways that you can observe and perceive, but you have no sensation that you have control over it. An interesting thing is that most people probably would have experienced something like this at one time or another where maybe not just your hand, but your whole entire body. You can kind of feel as though you're going on autopilot sometimes. It's not always the case that you feel as though you have perfect conscious control over everything that you're doing. You can, I mean, it's a, it's really basically just a shift of mindset to, to sort of experience uh, just letting your body do whatever it's going to do. And it'll still go on. It'll still go on walking. It'll still go on talking. It'll still go on, you know, doing all these kinds of things. And you don't necessarily have to attribute conscious will. It doesn't feel like it has to be an animating force in your life. Right. I mean, it's, if you think about situations where you've been under some extreme stress, for example. Yeah, like not sleeping for a night. Or you're extremely angry or extremely scared. Sometimes people will experience this idea of like that they're taking actions that they're not in control of, that they're out of control. A little bit control. of a disconnect, just like a disembodied a little bit. Right. And so, I mean, in some sense, if you think about those situations where these are necessarily experiences where they seem out of the ordinary, the, the, the alien hand syndrome, the feeling of being out of control, are all cases where it seems distinct or different from your what we would call normal experience. What I'm wondering is, does the existence of those experiences mm. as exceptions, does that actually argue against conscious will? Or does that actually argue for conscious will as being you know, exceptions that make the rule? You know, when you hear this, when I thought about alien hand syndrome the first time, I mean, you're, you wouldn't immediately think of it as discounting conscious will in general. Because you think about it, well, I've got my conscious will and I've just got something, part of my body all of a sudden is not attached to that conscious will. It's as though I'm pretty clear about, I know what the rest of my body is doing, but I don't know what my hand is doing. It's just separate from it. Right. I mean, if you think about walking, for example, as a trivial example, when you walk, you have all kinds of muscle movements, contractions, ex you know, extensions that you're in no way conscious of. In order to stay balanced while you're walking down the street, as you're stepping over small stones or you know, tripping slightly on on cracks in the in the sidewalk, your micro adjustments and yeah, yeah, constantly making motions with your with your body that you're in no way consciously willing in the sense of of being thoughtful about in any way, right? They're, they're definitely happening automatically, but you wouldn't say that that they were outside of your will in, in that way, or that that, that, that's, that would somehow call your, your the existence of your will into question. So I, I, just, I just wonder, maybe we could go back to Wegner and, and you know, see 
what what he says about this. I mean, how how does he use this as evidence? Well, I mean, I think this is something that people have been primed to be more ready to believe, which is that we don't know why we do things that we do. Right. And I think that's the basic intuition that he's going on here. It's just the trend that cognitive psychology has been going in for a long time is that we really are not aware of why we do anything. There's a there's just this this incredible complexity in our minds from all kinds of different um, subconscious processes that are going on. And our awareness is a is such a limited part of the kinds of real motivations that animate any particular action. So yeah, exactly. And I think that you know this is the the, the key distinction again, going back to this duality here between the idea that you feel that you are doing something in the sense that you have a perception that that your body is taking an action you know whether that be your your arm is moving to adjust your shirt or your legs are moving to uh, avoid tripping but you don't necessarily have the feeling that your intention is the cause of that action you, you experience that you're doing something. You're aware that you are doing something, but you don't feel that your intention is the cause of that action. And I guess Wagner would just say that's true of, well, we feel we have this intention for other stuff, but in fact, it's exactly the same, that it's right. pretty much all like these automatic behaviors. It's pretty much, it's all outside of our ability to comprehend um, it's just for some reason we make this mental attribution to some things but not others so we don't you know we can we're perfectly fine in saying oh i wasn't aware of that thing that was happening to me it was just outside of consciousness but things that are in consciousness and that we have an intention for we tend to attribute us as being the the people responsible for undertaking a particular thing so the question then i think becomes not is it possible that sometimes we experience actions that we do not feel that we are intending that's true we 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 believe that right we believe that sometimes our bodies move in ways that we do not necessarily feel that we are consciously controlling or intending that is that's true the question is is there ever a situation where our intention is in fact the cause of an action. Yeah, I I suspect that he's saying that a will cannot be the cause of an action because I don't know how much he spells this out here, but I think it's just kind of a, a tenet of, of cognitive psychology that things are divisible or can, or can be explained in terms of other smaller mechanisms. And he talks about will as being uh, sort of the a unitary single mechanism. So in other words, it's something that you can't go further back on and describe in terms of something else. It's almost as though attributing something to a will means that you can't analyze it any further. That's and right. He His explanation is he calls will an explanatory entity of the first order. 
And by that, he just means you can use it to explain things, but there's nothing that you can use to explain it. So in other words, it's kind of like a stopping point, like saying, you know, why did that happen? Well, it's because of God. Well, then you don't ask any further questions. That's just the end of discussion. And it's just sort of as far as you can go. In physics, for example, you know, there's certain fundamental forces in physics beyond which there isn't any real explanation. They're just taken as fundamental. So for us to call something conscious will, in Wegner's terminology, would be to take it as something fundamental that can't be broken down any further. And he says, no, it probably can be broken down further, and it's probably part of an accumulation of lots of other subconscious mechanisms that are going on. And psychology's natural tendency is to explore these kinds of sub-mechanisms. So using the term will is a little bit misleading. Right. Like, like calling something a, a soul, for example, and just sort of stopping there, that we have this singular essence that, you know, from which our intentions emanate or from which we make decisions that's so singular that you can't break it down into its parts. And psychologists have a real problem with that because we think of everything as having a cause and everything having components to it. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's take a, let's take a break and, and come back. Uh, let's see. So where where can we pick it up again? I think one thing that struck me as I was reading this is we tend to feel as though we have control over some things, you know, that shows up as feeling like conscious will. We willed something to happen. Think about this developmentally. We both have kids. When do they feel as though they caused something to happen? They often feel like they caused something to happen when they did not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and from that I mean from that point of view this this paper makes perfect sense to me, right? That, yes. I mean I'm I'm already I'm already almost all in because when you see this stuff develop in kids where it's clear that some things kids should not take credit for because it had nothing to do with something that they initiated you get a lot of misattributions there. It's similar to the idea of when you're watching a like a football game and you're like, oh, I need to sit on the couch because the last yeah. time the Patriots were in the Super Bowl and I was sitting on the couch, yeah. you know, they came from behind and won the game, and I sit in my chair, they're, they're losing. Superstition, right? So superstition. superstition, I guess you could think of a lot of superstitions as just being a causal misattribution. So, the, you know, then the question is, what's the purpose of, of thinking that you cause some action? Why would you, why would that be a good thing? And forget whether, for a second, whether it's true or not that you, that you, uh, that you yourself have somehow the ability to cause something to happen apart from other mechanisms. 
Um, well, I think it can only make sense in a in a social environment where you have, uh, you know, you're trying to maintain, you're trying to remember who of your friends is responsible for doing what event and and what they caused. It seems like a good shorthand, even if it's not strictly true, because you don't understand every single every single thing that's going on in the mind of someone. Okay, maybe in some deeper sense there was another cause to it, but it's certainly good shorthand to say that uh, somebody else is the cause of a certain action. And you know, even if there's if there's something more point. complex going on, you don't need to know all of that. It's a good shortcut. It's a good heuristic, I guess. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Maybe it's not about as much even that I need to believe that I am causing my own actions, but I need to believe that people cause actions because they want them to happen. They, yes. they do things because they want to do them. They will then, them to happen. And that, and then that you gives can me a way of blame, understanding. You, yeah. yeah. It, it, it informs the way that you would interact with them. It helps me think, well, Rolf is the kind of person who would do this because he's like yeah. a good guy. And even so, though I'm just infinitely more complex than that, for your purposes, you've got a lot of other people to think about. You've got a lot of the others, you know, got a complex social network. For your purposes, it's good enough to have a, a quick way of categorizing people and their intentions. So in that way, my own free will is is really just my self-perception of my own body as an agent just like every other agent out there right this is and this is so dan dennett he makes a mention of dan dennett i think that there's a lot that's relevant to it so dennett talks about essentially different ways of perceiving causality in different kinds of things so dennett suggests that with people we adopt the stance that as though they had minds, he calls that the intentional stance. Whether or not people have minds, it's useful to treat them as if they do. So it's it's sort of immaterial what the actual status is. It's useful to treat people as though they had feelings, intentions, all of these shorthand kinds of things, instead of getting to a really complicated story that involves, you know, fundamental physics and understanding the state of the universe. We can treat people as though they have these emotions and intentions and things like that. Alternately, we could we can take a physical stance and we, we can describe causation physically, like billiard balls hitting each other or a rock falling down the hill. It's useful to think of a rock in, in terms of physical properties and physical interactions. It's useful to think of a person in terms of all of these mental characteristics. It's an easy way to get around socially, I guess, even though it's, if it's not strictly 100% correct in every situation, it's good enough and it's, a, it's an efficient shortcut. That's right. And it doesn't answer the question of who is perceiving this apparent will, but it, it at least gives us a framework for thinking about why it's there. You still have, you yeah. still have the problem of why would you have an experience at all? Yeah. Well, that, that gets into lots and lots of bigger questions about consciousness. And I think Wagner at least accepts the basic idea that we're, we're conscious and we're aware of these 
kinds of things. You know, you can't deny that somebody has an experience. They do. He would just say we're mistaken about the nature of that experience. Yeah, that's interesting. Why would it be important whether or not we have conscious will? I mean, if we don't have conscious will, if in some sense, you know, our intentions are not the cause of our actions, then I think it's, it seems like the most obvious way that it's important is, is just from a moral philosophy perspective. Mm-hmm. If there's no relationship between my intention and my action, or that my intention is actually comes after my action. It's not that there's no relationship of the two. It's, it's just that there isn't a, a one-way directional causality. It's that the right. intention doesn't cause the act, I guess is what Wagner would say. That there would, be a, there would be a correlation between them, just that it's not a causal, it's not a strict causal factor. That's right. And the key being that we tend to think about people being responsible for actions that they intended to cause Mm -hmm. as being a different class of action and responsibility than one where it was an accident. Yeah. Right. I mean, if it's the case that our will does not cause our actions, then everything that we do is in sense an accident. Well, and I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier is, you know, what relation does this argument have to free will versus determinist argument? I I think that Wegner essentially, he would not admit it. And he says that he's talking about something different. He says that we're getting away from this free will versus determinism argument. But I think that essentially, you'd have to say that this is an entirely deterministic argument that all of this stuff is happening deterministically and consciousness and free will are something that go along for the ride that they're what we would call epiphenomenal. They, they don't have a causative relation to what actually happens. That's right. He wouldn't deny consciousness. Consciousness happens, but it doesn't cause the things that we think we're doing to happen. So in terms of, of responsibility, yeah, I think this has a direct implication. If we if we can't be aware of all of the factors that are causing us to do something, and in fact our intentions don't cause our actions, the direct implication is that we shouldn't be praiseworthy or blameworthy for things that we do that seem to be of our free will, but in fact are not. And we also shouldn't worry about whether we're doing the right thing or not. Well, it's not up to us to decide whether to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So why are we worrying about all this stuff? You know, uh, why would we worry about stuff? What's the purpose of that? What is that? What what what? Like, what problem is that solving for the organism? If we're not in in control, why would I have the experience of being? concerned or anxious that i'm not doing the right thing yeah i think that's a buddhist way of putting things honestly i think that's uh i think that's a buddhist approach right and i think you're more familiar with 
Well, that's what I had. That I had the same thought that you know it's, it's sort of related to the Zen concept of not judging every thought as being a good thought or a bad thought, but rather just observing that you are having the thought. Yeah, that w- that would be sort of a natural implication of uh, I think of of Wagner's. Yeah, of taking that perspective, I think the natural first impulse that people have is kind of this panic that, well, I mean, I have to, I have to believe that I'm responsible for what it is that I'm doing. I can't, I otherwise I just sit there and do nothing. You know, I would just sit in the corner and and I wouldn't move because I wouldn't feel that anything that I did had an effect. But I don't think that's necessarily of true. Of course. I mean, that's we get back to this question of this is, are we really saying this is deterministic? And it feels like it has to be because if my intention does not cause my action, and I mean, in this sense, you have to think about the question of what is an action? Is a thought an action? It's curious that I don't, that, that Wegner didn't dive into that part of it too much. If our intention is not the cause of our thought, then we cannot choose to think about it a certain way. We cannot choose to judge or not judge our thoughts as being right or correct. Hmm. Well, I'm just gonna. I don't. I can't choose to do anything after after that. <laughs> I know. He just. I'm just gonna chill now. <laughs> I'm just gonna sit here and chill because, like, now what? I mean, I get the point that sometimes you do stuff and you don't feel like you're in control. I get that, 100%. But it certainly feels very much so like I am, in some sense, making a choice to think about things a certain way or have a certain set of beliefs. Maybe I'm not. Well, it's impossible to get away. I think it's interesting that you you still do say, I feel, I feel like that. Maybe it's just impossible to get away from that as a, you know, a, a human with the evolutionary baggage that you have. It just comes along with our psychological profile that we, that we feel that way, that we feel as though we have some sort of control. And you, you just can't. <laughs> Maybe you can, as much as you might wish to turn it off sometimes, you can't necessarily turn it off. It can be a relieving framework in some ways, like... Um, it can release some responsibility that you might carry for negative consequences. If our intention is not causing all of these terrible things to happen, we can just sort of release our our responsibility for that. But likewise, we can't, you know, we can't take credit for any of the good stuff that we do too. Makes me think about the moral philosophy of, of punishment and whether or not there might be an evolutionary component to assigning intentionality and will to others back to your idea of maybe this is all about we perceive this uh, phenomenon in ourselves because we need to feel that other people are acting intentionally right and maybe maybe that all ties yeah exactly it's a social thing maybe it all ties back to the fact of we need to hold others responsible because if they've done something wrong that we don't like or that is not adaptive for us, that, that they may be more likely to do that same kind of thing again in the future. And we need to stop them doing that in order for us to you know, 
carry our genes forward. Well, it's such a legal, I mean, it is such a legalistic framework in a way, because I mean, think of how much intention has to do with how the law is constructed and how we feel people have the right to suffer for doing a particular thing. Think of uh, you know, the worst serial serial killer or, or mass shooter. They did it with the full, you know, it's part of the legal framework that they did it with full intention to cause as much damage as they could versus, you know, if someone appears to have done an action while they were sleepwalking or you know, under the control of someone else, we don't hold them responsible. So it is clearly a way that we mete out punishment. It's essential to that. And what, I, what I'm trying to understand is, is that necessary in any way from a biological or evolutionary standpoint? It's certainly the way that all societies that I'm aware of treat this issue, right? Is that, is that are there places where people don't think about that they if if the goal of say for example incarceration the goal of putting someone in jail is to prevent them doing something again which would make sense from an evolutionary standpoint right if we're concerned that this person is going to kill us because they killed somebody else mm-hmm. it makes sense to prevent them doing that by incarcerating them we don't need to assign any intentionality to them but merely to, to observe that they've done this action in the past and that people who kill once are more likely to kill again, for example. And it would be a sufficient reason to put them in jail. But that's not the way we think about it at all. But, and you know, there is something yeah. there. You can, you can see the use of something like this, too, because if I firmly believe that another person deserves jail time for, you know, whatever action that they did then I'm probably less likely to do it myself. Right. So it's a... Well, I mean, but does, is it necessary, though? I mean, if you merely observe that when people do those things, they're punished for them, and you don't want to be punished, you would still be less likely to do so. You mean, does the intention... Does the, does the attribution of intention... Yeah. Is that Does that play any helpful in any way? Does it do anything for us? I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah, it's it's not clear. It's not clear. It's just it's not clear why it's useful. Wouldn't it be plenty fine to just think about it sort of in behaviorist? You know, you you observe someone being punished for a particular action. You don't have to make any sort of attribution about whether or not they did it on purpose. Just a strict kind of consequentialist framework. Yeah, I don't know. In, I mean, in, in some ways that might be... I don't want to go too far in, in kind of societal implications of this stuff, but in some ways then you it seems more um, useful because then you don't think that there's any way you're going to get out of it by claiming that it wasn't your responsibility that the rules are the rules and it just sort of always, you know, not going to try and uh, get out of it in some way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, okay. So what do you, what do you think of the idea of just accepting that conscious will in is, is an illusion? What is it? How does it change the way that you would operate in life? I mean, you, you kind of mentioned this already, but sort of subjectively. 
What's it? Right. No, I was thinking about that this week because I know that this is something that that you you mentioned before that you sort of might ascribe you, you might believe in this kind of uh, framework, and uh, I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around it, honestly, because of the the conundrum of it that I mentioned before just just a minute ago, which is, all right, I would love to simply say I am not responsible for things that I think and do because I would like to relax and not worry about <laughs> all the things. I've spent so much time worrying about if I'm doing the exact right thing and if I'm living up to my full potential and I'm spending mm-hmm. my time on earth as optimally as I possibly could. And I spend yeah, that's a, that's an, inordinate, a big... an inordinate amount of time worried about this topic. And that are you making the right choices? Am I making the right choices? Exactly. And if I could just simply say, well, I have no control over the choices that I make, or my my intention does not cause the choices that I make. So there's some sense in which me as an entity is the cause of those choices, but my my will is not causing that choice. Then I could release myself from it. But then if I could release myself from it, I would be making a conscious choice <laughs> to release would myself you know? from it. If I would if you I, though? I mean, this. If uh, I could choose, if I can choose to believe that there is no such thing as free will, then I am by definition making a willful choice, and it just basically kills the whole argument. No, maybe it's just no a, maybe it's just a maybe it's just a meme that's spreading to you without your without right. your necessary participation. Well, then, in that case, then I would I would be. Let me put it this way, then I would be pleased if that were to happen to me that your responsibility is removed if it were to occur to me or 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 if such a a, uh, an event took place in my consciousness that i came to believe somehow that i do not have conscious free will my consciousness right now is saying is experiencing that I feel that I would be happy about that. That would be I would, that would, that would be like a good thing for me. Kind of takes away motivation. In what way? Why do you say that? Well, I think people that are anxious about the future or anxious about ambitions and I guess a lot of anxiety around using your time well if that anxiety goes away, then it certainly could be that motivation to do extraordinary things is kind of removed too. It seems that it's a complaint. It may be a complacency, I guess is what I'm saying. It it seems that the notion of will and conscious will is related to the notion of good and bad, right? The, the idea that wanting to do something that is good necessitates that there is an actor, an agent that is choosing to do something. That's faced with the choice of doing nothing, doing something bad, or doing something good. That if you take away the agency, then the, the notion of good and bad also kind of become challenged. How does this work with you if you could see a reasonable causal chain that leads you up to any kind of decision that you make. So 
imagine something that you're, uh, I don't know, um, what's a choice that you might make that would have some kind of moral consequence to it? Well, I mean, there's deeper things, but I mean, an easy thing to think about is, um, you know, what you choose to do for your job, right? Or how you spend, choose to spend your time with work, I think is like an easy one to think about because it has moral consequence potentially, but it's also so contingent. So it has both sides, right? I mean, and you, you have the feeling that you're making choices about what you're doing. Like we went, we made the, we feel that we made the choice to go to graduate school, for example. But in order to even have that choice be a possibility, so many things had to be the case. And that, so you could trace back mm-hmm. that chain of events that led you to go to graduate school. And you could say, well, if this hadn't happened in this way, if I hadn't been born in this location at this time, then none of these things would have been possible. And in some ways, you could say that it's a very reasonable, logical outcome of of my circumstances that I ended up doing that. All of which you didn't have control over in the first place. You didn't have any control over the circumstances under which you were born. You know, you didn't have any control about who your parents were, about all of the things that happened on early in life to you. And, you know, all of the, there's always, there's always a plausible causal chain that you could give for any, particular decision that you make that would include things that you never had control over in the first place. I mean, you can certainly see circumstances under which people seem to take credit for things that are not their responsibility. You know, people feel as though they deserve certain kinds of things in life. I guess I can't help but think of uh, sort of like an Anne Randian philosophy. I don't know. Do you know Ayn Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand, I guess. Ayn Rand, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I've I've read uh, a couple of her books. I just accidentally it was I, I don't know why, but I I felt compelled to watch the because it was on Amazon Nep- Prime, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Ad- Atlas Shrugged, which sure. was it was a movie made a couple years ago, and it was so awful, but I couldn't stop watching it. I mean, in the the, it's directly relevant to this because that's a big force in what drives people politically in America is the idea that there is a huge amount of individual freedom and responsibility for actions. I don't necessarily have a problem with that as a societal thing that people have the sense that sense of responsibility and that is something that causes them to take responsibility for their actions and and try to do the right thing. Anne Rand takes it way too far, though. It's just such a cardboard cutout of what freedom of will might look like, um, because you've got these wealthy industrialists who have billions of dollars and who feel like they're so entitled to it. And that's the, you know, that's the basis of the entire idea is that individuals form, you know, individuals are entitled to the products of everything that they produce and anyone else is just a you know some sort of greedy socialist who's trying to steal from their creativity or their their productivity yeah so that i mean that that sort of thing i think is is part of an american belief in individualism that we are responsible for everything that we do 
and that we have we have choices that are consequential. We deserve exactly what we have because we earned it. It's certainly the case that we don't have as much control as we think we do often. There's... So you're buying, so you're buying that I, I, I'm taking from this, you buy this part way. Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. No, for sure. I mean, there's no, there's no question that you're sometimes you do things that you don't have any intention of doing. And sometimes you think that you had, you tried to do something. And in fact, the cause of the thing happening had nothing to do with your intention. I believe that that's the case, but that just because that can happen or and, and does happen doesn't mean that it's never possible for you to willfully take an action where your where your action is caused by your intention. So how you do you know? know the difference between these two things? Uh, <laughs> how do you know <laughs> if, you're wrong, if you're wrong? Something. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, how do you know that something's an, that you, when you're seeing something that it's an illusion versus that it that it's not an illusion. How are you convinced that you are responsible for your actions? Sometimes, even though you know that, sometimes when you're convinced, you're wrong. That's a good question. I don't know that I would necessarily even argue that I could, that you or I could say definitively whether or not a specific action was intentional and that our intention caused the action in a specific instance. All I'm suggesting is that Knowing that that sometimes that breaks down does not disprove the existence of the will in, in the first place. I I definitely it doesn't have some... prove you know yeah and now proving that it exists is something is, is is a harder thing. I think every decision that you make has some sort of antecedent and there's some sort of causal chain that goes into it. So I I do agree with Wagner in some of these points about there is no will at which everything else stops and that just begins the causal chain as though there's some sort of soul inside of you where you know your actions just emanate from purely and there's nothing that causes there's nothing that influences that pure sense of will i think that i mean he makes a good point i think that's the wrong way of thinking about it but i also i i do i i do sympathize with with your point that in some sense there's probably some room for real conscious choices that fall outside of i mean that yes they may have antecedents there may be something that ultimately causes them you know whether it's you know from the instant of the big bang everything was determined or whether they're non-deterministic in some kind of way you know that everything has some sort of antecedent cause but some things are more, some things it's more clear that there was an outside cause. And sometimes it really would be a useful way of describing it to say that your intention was the sort of the best way to explain why something happened. That makes sense. I think you've, you, you, you've captured uh, as, I think as far as we're going to be able to get to <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to figure today. out anything. I feel like I learned something at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>